0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Let's Talk Surgery podcast for RCS Ed. I am your host, Gregory Carter, Colorectal Registrar from up north in Edinburgh. With me, co-host, good friend, Ceci, how are you doing?
1: I'm okay. I'm actually um, not in Scotland for once, whereas um, our listeners know I'm a paediatric surgery registrar. I am actually in Scarborough in North Yorkshire, which is where my husband lives, enjoying a little break with my husband and his family. So I'm really enjoying it here. It's a little bit sunny.
0: Very good. Part of the discussions today may well involve work-life balance, so we might have to educate you to enjoy your holiday rather than work during your holiday.
1: Again with this, how many podcasts?
0: The episode today is a promotional episode as opposed to one of our feature-length episodes, and we're pleased to have with us today Mr. Simon Patterson Brown.
2: Simon, how are you doing? I'm great, thanks. Very sunny up here, isn't it, Greg? It is. Uh, I've been on for cloudy a, like a Scarborough, not at all. Uh, not a not
0: a cloud in the sky. It's a it's a great Lovely. day to be in Edinburgh. So Simon Fazman Brown, welcome to the podcast today. We're going to talk to you about one of the courses that you are co-directing, the MSc in Patient Safety and Clinical Human Factors, and we'll come to that in a bit more detail. With most of our podcast episodes, we try to get to know the individual behind the message. Sue. Open question, who is SPB
2: as you're fondly known in Edinburgh? You want me to tell you? Yes, I do. Uh, Well, I'm an upper GI surgeon, general surgeon, but I retired in March of this year. I went half time three years ago and um, picked up some remote and rural surgical locums around Scotland, the Highlands and Islands, to help set up a project that we're doing with the College and the Scottish Government to encourage. surgeons in some of their spare time to go and work in these um hospitals which uh, need um surgeons basically um and so i've been doing a bit of that for three years while i've been half time in edinburgh and i've retired completely from edinburgh from clinical practice in in march so that i can and i've done a few more locums i've been in orkney recently in the balfour hospital in orkney um, and I also continue to teach on the MSC in patient safety and clinical human factors, as well as run um, a lot of the NOTS courses with non-technical skills for surgeons in the um, College of Surgeons in Edinburgh, which we do around the country, sadly, online for the last 18 months. But we're just starting to do them face to face again. So that's going to kick off, which I think is good for uh, everyone.
0: An excellent synopsis of of who the man is. The other question I wanted to explore with you is just walking through your journey very briefly from medical school through your, your time in Edinburgh to retirement. What are some of the highlights in that journey?
2: Okay, well, I trained in London, St. Mary's Hospital, which is now part of Imperial College. And at the time, St. Mary's had a very good rugby side. One of the reasons I went to St. Mary's, keen rugby player. Um, and we had a lot of international rugby players over the years. Um, so I qualified and I did, I went into surgery around the, the hospitals around London and the, the London periphery. And then I went to Hong Kong to do my fellowship. And after my fellowship, I did 18 months in, in uh, as a surgical fellowship out there, a visiting lecturer. And then I came to Edinburgh to do um, 18 months in Edinburgh as a visiting lecturer where I met. Um, Sir David Carter, James Garden, um, and um, obviously became very friendly with them over the years. Went back to London, finished my senior registrar jobs, and then um, came back to Edinburgh as a consultant in 1994. So a long time ago and worked very closely with um, both Sir David Carter and um, James Garden for many, many years as we sort of developed general surgery and subspecialist surgery in Edinburgh emergency surgery and so on and you know what
0: you haven't described there is the impact you've had on every you know many generations of surgical trainees and consultants have come through because certainly i've, I've been in edinburgh for the last eight to ten years and i know that most of the consultants have certainly trained me in that time have come through you would at some point and even you continued to train us up until march when you retired so uh, on behalf of every other trainee locally and those who have moved away, we thank you for your time that you had up here in in Scotland. Thank Next you. up is some quick fire questions. Usually these are uncomfortable, fun questions, but as a mark of respect, I've kept it comfortable for you, and hopefully still a little bit of it is fun. So, question number one: What is your biggest plan for retirement?
2: Well, that's a difficult question, isn't it? Because I've, I'm not. I, I don't like the word retirement. You see, I right. think that we have different stages in life. We go to, uni- we go to school and we learn and develop a, uh, our um, talents. And then we go to university or college or whatever we want to do. and We focus on certain ones and then we start a career and we have several lanes in our career. Then we have our family and our social life and our work-life balance, which I, I've always been very keen on. And, uh, and in For all the trainees as well, to encourage them to have interests outside surgery. And then you come to the time when you've probably done most of the things you want to do in clinical practice. So you move to other areas, but I don't look on this as retirement. I've got other areas I want to deal with. I want to keep fit. I do a bit of cycling and running. I play golf. I ski. I'm going to help with the college with their further development of the Knots courses. And I'm helping at the minute. I was a director of the Patient Safety and Clinical Human Factors, MSC, but that's now been taken over by Steve Yule, Professor Steve Yule, who's just finished his first year in Edinburgh, where he is in the Chair of Behavioural Sciences. So I would like to support him. I want to support the um, initiative for remote and rural surgery. And as I get a bit older, I'll probably stop doing surgery. But at the minute, I'm still capable of going to these places and doing some clinical work. I'll do a bit more writing. I've written a lot of surgical books in my career, but I'm going to probably write some other type of books as I um, move forward into my next career. So we'll see how successful those things are going to be.
0: Just before I forget, one of those books has helped me get through the FRCS. So Simon, again, thank you. Um, Good,
2: good. (laughs) But remember, that was a lot of other people writing in those books. I've been the editor of the books with uh, with lots of very good chapter writers, some of whom were my previous trainees, and are now experienced consultants around the world and in Edinburgh.
0: Question number two, I was going to say, what would you miss most about frontline clinical practice? But I'm going to rephrase that. What are you going to miss the most about the Seapod Theatre in the Royal Infirmary of
2: Edinburgh? Okay, well, that's a good question, because the Seapod Theatre is is wrongly named, because the Seapod is a confidential inquiry into post-operative deaths. and. That's really an odd audit that was going for a long time. And it's carried on, I think, in different areas. But what you're talking about, the emergency theatre, and this was a a thing that we started in Edinburgh where we had, we divided the elective and emergency surgical service so that when you were on call emergencies, you didn't have any elective work to do. And we did that 25, well, probably 20 years ago. And we were one of the first units um, in the UK and probably many parts of the world to recognize that you can't do your elective work and be on call at the same time. So we had an emergency theater, 24 hours. And that has has been a fantastic development for trainees because they get a lot of emergencies. They don't have to do elective at the same time. The consultants can focus on emergencies. And I've really enjoyed um, throughout my time doing emergency work in the emergency theater. Great for training, great for support, great for teamwork. And, yeah, I, I will miss um, – I mean, I still do some emergency surgery when I go to Orkney, but I'll miss the cut and thrust of be a, a busy emergency general surgery unit like the Royal Infirmary and working very closely with my other consultant colleagues in all specialties, you know, general surgery, gynecology, um, anesthetics, orthopedics, and so on, because it's all about the, the emergency patient. And, of course, the nursing staff, the ODPs, all of whom are part of that, as well as the trainees, foundation doctors, and everybody. So I miss the, I'll miss the teamwork. That's what I'll miss.
0: You know, when I, when I set that question up, I thought he'll probably almost certainly talk about the team because that's where you're, you're good for promoting that team working environment and also the cutthroat nature of how busy that, that unit is. But I think it's also a testament to some of the reform and, and changes that you and your colleagues set up in terms of having that consultant presence in the emergency theater, which is certainly Good for us as trainees and and for other trainees uh, out there. And I think that's something that should be be replicated in other departments. So um, hats off to you on that. We're coming to the end of our quick for our questions. Question number three. Simon, as part of your next chapter, you have been relocated to a desert island. Then you also have the luxury of taking two more items. One being a surgical instrument and the other being a non-surgical thing or person who is not a close family or friend. What two things would you take with you?
2: So I've got to take a surgical instrument. Correct. Well, I suppose Desert Island, I'd better take a scalpel, wouldn't I, you know, I need to get my food and protect myself and all that sort of thing. So I'd probably take my scalpel. Very
0: good.
2: But I'd but I better take a few extra blades with it because they'll <laughs> get, get blunt. I want to take, and, and, another, and another object I want to take, well, I'll take my guitar, definitely. Mm. As long as it's not too hot, because the guitar will suffer if it's too hot. With some spare strings. And what else did I... Is that all I'm allowed? You can have another person who's not a family friend. No.
0: so an interesting individual out there that you may have met before or you'd like to meet and certainly would want to spend some time with in a desert island.
2: Well, I better be careful if my wife listens to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, family and good. friends are there, oh, don't, don't worry. Family and <laughs> friends are there, yeah. Well, I, don't, I think I'd probably take my dog, actually, my little border terrier he can do some of the rummaging for food as well and i can talk to him
0: okay i hope he was part of family already but anyway (laughs) maybe not we're gonna we're gonna move on
2: another question
0: you when people think certainly those of us that have come through training in in scotland when we think of spb one of the things we think about first is educator so i guess my question to you is how have you seen surgical education change over the years, from your time at Mary's to your retirement, and what are some of the good things that you hope will stay?
2: Well, I think the main thing that that has changed over the last thirty years, thirty-five years, I suppose, been in surgery, taking training, and 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 then becoming a trainer, is the the more hands-on nature of the consultant surgical trainers. And I think um, when I was training, we very much trained on the job and we were on call and we didn't really call the consultants in, you know, we, we, we tried to do as well as we could without the consultants and, and the good consultants at the time were very supportive, but in general, we, we weren't really trained, particularly in the emergency side In electives. We, we, we were trained by the consultants, but I think the big thing that's changed now is the consultants electively don't feel they have to do all the operating they can assist. And we know from all the audit results that, um, a well-supervised trainee doing an elective complex operation, a to me, whipple's resection, anterior resection, and so on, their results are just the same as the consultants. So there's no excuse for a consultant feeling they've got to do all the operating. They've got to keep their skills up. But I think the trainees get a lot better hands-on training now, electively, than they used to. And I think in an emergency situation, the consultants are more involved in the assessing patients, the decision-making, both during the day and at night, which is better for the patient. You know, you get the best decision for a patient as to whether they have an operation or not, and what sort of operation. And then I think the consultants are, are more involved in the operating theatre at all grades of trainees. I mean, even a senior trainees appreciate a consultant being in theatre, possibly because we're a better attractor than um, a junior trainee coming to theatre Remembering when I operate out of hours, I've got a registrar assisting me or I'm assisting the registrar. Whereas if a registrar operates out of hours, they've probably got an FY1 or 2 assisting them. And that's pretty difficult for them in a complex operation. So I think the biggest thing that's changed is that consultant surgeons are much more hands-on supporting and being with the trainee.
0: Agree, wholeheartedly agree. And and you actually... I see that over the last 10 years that that is getting better and better, particularly that out of our support as well. Final question for me, relating to surgical education then, as you go through this next chapter, if you were to look back or come back to the Royal Infirmary in 10, 15, 20 years time, what one thing would you hope to see in surgical education in the future? So what, what is your one hope for surgical education moving forward?
2: Well, I think the thing that we've not been very good at in Edinburgh, and perhaps in many hospitals, certainly in the UK, is involving simulation early in surgical training. I have surgical trainees coming, junior trainees, middle grade and more senior, coming to operate with me, either to do part of the operation or whatever. And I think that their skills could be better if they'd done a bit of practicing on a simulator. And I think that I would like to see that become a bit more compulsory so that trainees come into the theater, go and practice their laparoscopic suturing on a, on a model, a simulation model and get their skills up a little bit. So that when they come to the operating theater to do some complex laparoscopic surgery or even some basic laparoscopic surgery, and remember most of the general surgery is now laparoscopic. I think that their training should be better with simulation. And it's partly the, the consultant sport we should probably insist on it. We should set up training modules and uh, and train our registrars in a simulator. And you do a certain number of hours. And there's some great simulators out there. One of them developed in Edinburgh. Nothing to do with me, but that is there that records what happens. And you can look at people improving. So I would like to think in the next five years that will become um, much better you know and if you're going to be an airline pilot you tr- you will train and learn in a simulator so what we should be doing the same thing in in surgery in all specialties
0: would agree entirely and we've actually seen data to suggest that so two things there is the integrated surgical training the ist program which i think has, has taken on board what you've just described there and trying to ensure that as people come through from fy2 into the early years of, of surgical training, i.e., core surgical training, what used to be called core, that that simulation is part of their mandatory program, both at home, but also going to specific courses. And I know this Scottish simulation collaborative is also working hard on that as well. Sure. And we've seen from their data actually that those who engage highly with that, when they turn off their performances and the surgical skills, are much better. We've also seen with the emergence of robotic surgery, the robotic simulators and the improvement in ability with using some of the so i think you're absolutely right and it's something that we should do better at and and it's as you say there's so many models out there that that it's not an excuse that we don't have the facilities to do that anymore
2: absolutely right greg yeah
1: yeah that's um very true and um it's even trickling down into higher specialty training interviews i know certainly when i got my number in pediatric surgery um simulation in a you know, LAP Trainer was part of it and one of the stations that weighted very heavily towards selection. And um Scotland, as you say, Greg, has really been on the forefront of adopting simulation, including at the college. Now um speaking of the college, we are lucky to belong to one that tends to champion innovation. And one of the things that it's done is the kind of adoption of non-technical skills and emphasis on human factors training in surgery. Now, um, what was it like forming the Knotts programme or being one of the early people involved in it and teaching on it? What, what was that process like?
2: Well, you're going into history now, Ceci. Indeed. I mean, when, when I came to Edinburgh, one of the projects that I had at the back of my mind was how was it that we can assess someone who's going to be a good surgeon so right from the beginning, so the early 90s, I thought that we, we needed to know what was it that made a good surgeon. And if you spoke to lots and lots of consultant surgeons and, and it was written about um, Professor Al- Sir Alfred Cushieri and Dundee did, did some audits in the 80s. And they were all talking about hand eye coordination and skill and clinical decision making and all that sort of thing. And I felt And and some of my colleagues felt that wasn't really what made a good surgeon. It was something else. Who would you go to with your family, your loved ones? Who would you ask to look after them if they were ill? And sure, they've got to be technically competent. But we know that most surgeons are reasonably competent technically. But there are some really good surgeons who bring different skills in. So um, we put um, some, got some money together, and Steve Yule in, got he- involved uh, and, and, and uh, with me uh, and the college, and we set up the original project that that Steve did as his postdoctoral thesis. He was a psychologist in Aberdeen, working with Rona Flynn, and he wasn't medical in his background at all, but he was he, he was a psychologist, and we did a big study at that time looking at what was it that made a good surgeon, and. And we found a huge number of skills that surgeons thought made good surgeons that were non-technical. We took all the technical out. And that allowed Steve to bring it all together into a handbook and a taxonomy, looking at both the cognitive, you know, how we think, our situation awareness, our decision making, both in times of stress and elective situations, and so on, and our social skills, you know, how we communicate, how we take part with a team. What about the leadership skills for people who are surgeons? And um, that was all put together as part of what we call not non-technical skills for surgeons. And we realized that when we looked at the literature, most of the adverse events and errors and poor performance is surgeons or teams that lack those skills. And so we thought, well, if we could teach those skills, we'll improve the overall surgical performance. And we've done various studies which have shown that's true. To such an extent now, we, we run a lot of Knots courses. We've been doing Knots courses for about 15 years now, and it's been increasing to such an extent that now the curriculum, I think for all specialties, not just surgery, but all the specialties that's got, gone through the GMC, they, the GMC have said in their, some part of their curriculum recommendation that it has to have some teaching of some things that are within the specialty of human factors and it's going to uh, picking up things like communication and teamwork. So all trainees in the future are going to have to be trained in things that are not cutting and sewing and clinical knowledge. And there are many places in England now, and they've led the field in England. They've overtaken us in Scotland, despite the fact we've developed the knots course. And there are several centers in England that run knots courses Every year for all their surgical trainees. So they're answering the GMC curriculum and we're not because in Scotland, our trainees don't go on. They can go on a Knots course, but it's not organized by the deanery. We're talking with some of the um, dean, dean, deaneries in Scotland at the minute because the college run these courses and, and actually I think each region should run them for their trainees. So that was the story going backwards. And now we've recognized that that not non-technical skills are surgeons, similar in in anesthetics, anesthetic non-technical skills. Um, We know how important it is for both the the surgical performance or the anesthetic performance, but also for the surgical team. And that includes anesthetists, surgeons, uh, scrub nurses, ODPs, and so on. And that's the thing that's going to move forward in the next five years. A teamwork in the operating theater and outside and the, the, the medical specialties they don't do it you know there isn't a um, non-technical skills course for, for for medical specialties and of course they need it accident and emergency huge issue of teamwork cardiology interventional cardiology radiology gastroenterology so it's a, a big big factor that we haven't really addressed in the world yet but um, we haven't addressed it in the UK, although we're getting better and surgery is probably leading the way. But the other specialties need to follow.
1: Greg has mentioned about your academic publications, but there is a whole long string of publications and papers around human factors that you have produced. And there's one particular one that I came across in preparing for this a little response that yourself Steve and other people had put in response to a surgical article talking about ego in the operating room and I thought this would be a nice opportunity to ask you about that that balance between surgical ego and patient safety, is it still something that exists? Is it something you've seen getting better as you've progressed in your career? And is it something that we still need to actively stamp out and improve as we move forward?
2: Well, Ceci, that is a key issue about a good surgical team. And when I say good surgical team, I don't mean surgeons, I mean anesthetists and nurses and everybody. Yeah. The good surgical team doesn't have any Big egos in it, either surgeons and nurses or nurses, they may be very good and they may be all be very well respected in their own field, but they don 't necessarily have a very big ego and The problem with big egos is that you develop that or it is developed on top of something else instead of somebody else and in general, the people who get into trouble who behave badly, the teamworks that don 't work, I think probably those with a big ego are people who are not very confident. They lack a little bit of self-confidence and perhaps they're not quite so competent and they, they sort of balance their lack of competence and they're not very com- confident with it in their ego and their behaviors. And they perhaps bully a little bit. And I know there's a big issue about removing bullying in this, in the, in the workplace and in the surgical workplace. Yeah. So I think that, the best surgical teams don't have particularly big egos. You know, we as surgeons need to recognize that we're we're going to make mistakes and we're going to make the wrong decisions. And it's important that other people can, can identify when things are going wrong or things might not be as good as they can be. And, and speak up in theater and say, well, this isn't going very well. It's taking a long time. Do Do you think we should do something else? And, you know, we as surgeons and anesthetists and nurses need to be able to listen to that and go, you're quite right, because at the bottom of it, all of this is the patient. Yes. And what's better for the patient is everybody working closely together. And when you've got a big ego, that stops the team working closely together. So I think you're, you're, you're right. It is an issue in surgery. And we, we um, try and address that in, our, in, in the NOTS program, because if you're going to develop communication and teamwork, you can't have a big ego, because if you have a big ego, People aren't going to speak up. They're not going to listen to you. They're not going to work with you. And we're not going to work with them. So that, that was, uh, and our, we, I think it got into the news and it was on the Twitter account. and People were talking about it, suspending all the surgeons with a big ego and bullying, which is probably not what we were, tra- we, we were aiming for. But I think we just need to recognize in the hospital that the surgeons that are most respected, or the anesthetists, the doctors and nurses that are most respected, They don't need a big ego because they're confident and they're competent and everybody knows that and wants to work with them. Whereas those with a big ego, people don't want to work with them. You know, some people change their rotors so that they don't have to work with someone with a big ego because they don't like working with them. So it is a problem.
1: So very eloquently put, I do remember one little pearl or Good snippet of advice. There were many that I got from my Knox course. One of the trainers says, "You're really only as good as the team around you." So you have to operate with humility, and Greg is going to love this. You have to operate with vulnerability as well, and a real openness and willingness to work as part of the team. So there you go, a bit of Brené for you, Greg. Um, those of our listeners who have been on, who have been following us since the beginning. Know Greg is obsessed with Brene Brown and the issue of vulnerability in leadership, but that's for another day, isn't it? It is. Okay. Moving very swiftly on one of the, reasons or or, or the big reason why we wanted to have you on today is to talk a bit about the MSc in patient safety and clinical human factors that is delivered through the University of Edinburgh in collaboration with the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh and you've been very heavily involved in that process in addition to other friends of the podcast. um, You've mentioned Steve Yule already, we've had Tom Wisner on in a recent episode to um, talk about the WHO checklist and his involvement in teaching and training. Can you tell us a little bit about that particular course and the structure and um, what it involves really?
2: Sure I mean the first thing to say is that human factors and ergonomics or ergonomics and human factors is a specialty in its own right. It's not a medical specialty it's involved in safety and efficiency, working within teams, working with equipment in in all areas and we've and uh, you know, over the years, we've learned a lot from the airline industry, from travel, from you know high-risk industries like oil and gas, and so on, transport, and that's human factors and ergonomics, and it, it, a huge issue. And we recognise that it was equally important in healthcare. And actually, there were almost no human factors and ergonomics experts involved, and paid for, and salaried, and employed. By the NHS, and yet we are a very, very critical, critically vulnerable specialty because of all the patient care that we we, we run on it. If you go into the, the train, the travel, the um, air traffic control, there are lots and lots of human factors experts, and we really ten years ago didn't have any in, in the NHS in the UK. So Steve, Steve, and I, and and um, some of my colleagues in Edinburgh, James Garden, who runs the online surgical program and Nicky Moran and Nist in Edinburgh. And we thought that it would be a good idea to try and get some good points from the human factors experts and, and, and put it into a, a, a degree course around patient safety. And we called it clinical human factors because we're not covering the wide specialty of human factors. I'm not a human factors expert. And I have some experience in some of the areas around it, like non-technical skills, communication, teamwork, and so on. So we involved um, some expert psychologists, Steve Shorex, one of them who works with the European um, airline communications issues around the safety and efficiency. And he was extremely helpful. And so we set up a three-year course in the issues around patient safety, better patient performance. Tom Weiser then came to Edinburgh and he thought that the idea of structuring The first year is what happens at the minute. What are all the things in healthcare relating to safety and clinical human factors and, and communication teamwork? That's the first year. The second year, what can we do to improve all that in relation to better patient outcomes? And then the third year is a dissertation, doing a project on something related to performance improvement and so on. And um, we've now got accreditation from the Chartered Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors. So our course is accredited as a, a human factors related course, which is great. And and Steve Yule and, uh, and Nika Kotzen, involved in the university, took that forward. So it's great. And it's now an MSc. If you do the three years, and I think if you do one year, it's a certificate, two years diploma, and three years, um, you get the MSc. And we've just completed the the third year, so, so this is the th- third year of the program. Our first students with the MSc are coming out this summer and qualifying this summer. So it's gone really well, and Steve's taken over the directship from me. I'm a bit of has-been, you know. I'm getting older. Um, Steve's much younger and brings some, you know, psychological expertise into this, um, and it's gone really well. But of course, it wouldn't manage without all the people who teach and train on the course. It's an online course, so it revolves on a lot of tutors and a lot of people working online. And uh, we've got some really good people, not just surgeons, but in lots of specialties. Because It's not a surgical course. This is a course for everybody, and we've had people on it. Um, We've had vets on it, veterinary nurses, vets, paramedics, um, hospital managers, people from all specialties, both the surgical related ones, surgery, anesthetics and so on, but also nurses from the ward, accidents and emergency, pediatrics, orthopedics, etc. So it involves everybody and it's gone really well. And we've had, I think we had 40 students enrolling last year, which is really good. Um, and hopefully it'll keep going from strength to strength
0: great, and that's a testament to the quality of the course and the individuals behind it to see that you're getting year-on-year improvement in the in the numbers. But I wanted to just, just to ask you specific questions around from your vision of the course. What would be, so for someone listening out there who's thinking, I, I, I'm maybe interested in this, what's the one aim of the course that you hope your graduates walk away with at the end of the three years?
2: Okay, so the, the main one is people will come out of the course understanding um, what they need to do to improve teamwork in their workplace um, so that they can understand how they can improve their own performance um, because that's related to all the things we talk about in the course. And to improve the outcome, they need to know why things do go wrong. What are the adverse events in healthcare? Why do they occur? And therefore, if you know why they occur, you can work on the, those factors that cause them and you can improve those. So they'll be able to go back to their workplace, firstly, being a better healthcare professionals themselves, because they'll understand what it is that makes them better, but also how they can impart those skills to their team and make their team better so that the healthcare delivery to patients is improved. So that's really the two aspects of it all I listened to that and having't read
0: some of the information around it and you sort of think to yourself this is a course or some elements of the course should really be taught to all of us everyone involved in in healthcare systems because it's applicable to us all and there is a lot that we all can can get from it because you you know you describe some of the people enrolled in the course has been a wide-ranging audience from managers to, to vets, to nurses, to doctors. And you just think that's a testament to the applicability across the board. And so hopefully someday in, in a few years' time, we will find this as incorporated into general training of, of all of us involved in healthcare. So we look forward to that. And for those who are inter- interested in the
2: course, what's the application process like? contact edinburgh university um through the um, various links that are on the patient safety clinical human factors course part of the website and yep. um, then you apply there's an application form and if there's questions um nika Coxon, who is our superb support within the university um, will answer those sometimes the questions come to us um, about you know how intense is it? Some people in frontline clinical practice may have difficulty in completing all the modules because it's it's busy. It's online, but you do it at home when you when you when you feel like it, when you can manage. And actually, most of the people on the course are you know holding down frontline jobs. So, but it's hard. You know, it's it's an MSC. It's three years. It it takes a little bit of time, but it's enjoyable, and there's a lot of interaction with um, lots of other people. But as you say. We should be teaching this at medical school, and it should be part of our surgical training program. But it should also be in the medical training program. You know, these are really important issues about healthcare delivery. And you're right; we're not very good at it at the minute.
1: Indeed, and we can probably talk about um, issues of patient safety, human factors, ergonomics for hours and hours. So it's really important that um, we all learn to consider this as part of our daily practice. Your official title in, in, in the course is the year one director. Is that
2: right? That is correct at the moment. Yeah.
1: And from all the modules um, that we can see advertised on the website, uh, by the way, if you're listening to this and you are interested in signing up for this course, either doing it to certificate, diploma or master's level, um, which would be one years, two years or three years, um, respectively, um, do go on to the University of Edinburgh website. The course can, it's searchable on there, but you can also get it through the RCS Ed website. Yes, the one question I had for you, as year one director, what's your favourite bit of the course to teach or the bit you most enjoy?
2: Well, uh, I obviously at the beginning helped set up the whole course. So mm. I was involved in all the different um, courses and there are, mm six courses three in the first year three in the second and then a dissertation in the the third year and the the course that has been of most interest to me um, and i've had a lot of experience in all this area in developing the the knots courses with with steve yule running some research programs anyway during the last 15 or 20 years in edinburgh i think it's got to be the second course which is where we introduce and understand the relevance of human factors and ergonomics in healthcare. And we have a lot of online lectures and discussion boards, etc., with human factors and ergonomics experts. And I have learned so much from how they perceive an analysis of a problem. It doesn't have to be a healthcare problem. It can be any problem. Bringing together you know, the people who work in the workplace, the workplace environment, working with machines working with um, digitalization computerization workplace safety and things like that and so course number two i find um, superb i've enjoyed all the other courses because it's putting together a lot of what i've already um been involved in but um course number two really um is is great for understanding clinical human factors
1: fantastic. Now thank you so much. I I feel like after this hour I've earned the right to call you SPB if that's okay for joining us. Do you have any final thoughts or words to give to our listeners about human factors, patient safety or life in general?
2: Well, yeah, I yeah, I I've been because I've been around in healthcare and being surgery for pretty nearly 40 years. Firstly, you can call me anything you like. <laughs> You know, and uh, I've told my trainees and colleagues for years, call me Simon. But, you know, it's all this thing in in, in healthcare. more than anything else. You can't call your boss Simon. So SPB is fine because it's informal and I, and I don't mind. But actually, that is an issue that um, taking forward is I think we should all be on informal first name terms because it allows it breaks down a little bit of the barriers in the team. And um, I know everybody in the past was very formal. You've got to speak to the consultants. They're all Mr. Miss, Mrs. And so, on. I actually think everybody should be doctors. I quite like that new Twitter thing that came out saying, why do we be Mr. And Mrs. And Miss? Because it obviously is more difficult for ladies and men. I worked in Hong Kong for when I did my fellowship and everybody was a doctor. I think you're in America. Everybody's a doctor. So let's um, forget you know, male and female, let's be doctors and let's be informal and let's talk to each other in their first names. You don't get respect just because you call yourself Mr. So-and-so or Professor So-and-so. You get respect because you're good and you get respect because you're part of a good team. So that's what I would end up by saying. That's what it's all about. It's being part of a good team.
1: There you have it, guys. Be informal, be good, be part of a good team because that is what is best for our patients. So guys as usual if you have any questions, comments, requests, drop us a line on Coms at rcsed.ac.uk. Any final words Greg?
0: Uh Dr. Simon it's been a pleasure and hopefully we get to see you again sometime in the near future to talk about anything from surgery to guitars uh, to anything else it it has been a pleasure uh, catching up with you again so thanks for coming on the podcast not at
2: all It's, it's been a pleasure talking to you both good luck in your surgical careers and um yeah i'm very happy to talk again but thank you very much and good luck to everybody
1: thanks so much so that's a goodbye from me and a goodbye from greg and as always stay safe be kind to each other and bye everyone